0: Calling out to the Atascaceta community, it's time for your Atascaceta Library advanced copy. Get your notes and news now. Hello, Atascaceta community. It is July 3rd, 2021. Happy Fourth of July weekend. I do want to let you know the library is closed July 3rd through July 5th. We will reopen on Tuesday, July 6th from 10 to six. We hope that you have a safe and happy 4th of July. Hopefully the weather won't be too bad this weekend, although I hear rain is on order. In this episode, some of our staff got together to discuss lots of the STEM activities going on and how they disguise learning with a lot of fun. Let's join Darla, Marissa, and Daniel as they discuss programming at Atascaceta Branch Library. Have
1: you ever looked at a library program and go, wow, that looks like a lot of fun, but ever wondered what you're learning when you're coming to that library program? Hi, I'm Ms. Darla, and I'm here with Marissa. Hello. And Daniel.
2: Howdy, everyone.
1: And today we're gonna to be talking about educational qualities of programs that look like they're just fun and games, but they're actually learning something in the process. So a few years ago, quite a few years ago, the big trend was cookbooks, where you would make I like brownies and put broccoli in them. And I found that was the perfect analogy for teen programs and tween programs and really any program that looks like fun, but really there's a deep inner meaning to it. So I started calling it Putting Broccoli in the Brownies program. And things like that are programs that some parents may just look at and go, oh, well, that's just fun and games. But in truth, there's actually some learning going on. So my most recent program was Box Wars. It was our first program live outdoors. And in the program, teens build armor out of cardboard. And then when it's all over, they get to battle. The key is you only get one strip of duct tape to build your cardboard armor. So they're basically learning really good engineering and STEM concepts by learning how to build things without, you know, a whole lot of materials. Yeah. A whole lot of materials and how, you know, how to do like cutting slots and putting things together. And so it's really something that. Is educational and then they go wail on each other with the cardboard weapons that they've made although one of them actually had built an entire set of armor and then someone said hey what about your weapon and he had like like two or three minutes oh, to wow. build his weapon he like oh, yeah. gotten so excited about the, the thing like yeah you're just gonna have to run from people so he did build a weapon in the end so what are some other programs that y'all have done that you think are putting uh, broccoli That's in the brownies
3: I feel like a lot of my STEM programming is based around that. Um, I really like creating programs where it gets the kids to kind of ask questions and be more inquisitive about what we're learning about. Um, So for example, like the one that's coming up, which is like backyard exploring, it may just seem like we're going outside and just looking at (laughs) nature and uh, finding out all the different cool plants and like critters that are around us. but. Um, really, we're going out there to kind of ask questions like, what is this plant? Um, what is this tree? You know, why, why is this tree different in size and then the way it looks versus the other one, right? Or um, why does this tree have leaves that are like, you have leaves that are three-pronged, I guess, and then you have leaves that have teeth on the end, sawtooth leaves. And so Mm -hmm. I I like getting them to ask questions like that because that gets them thinking. Um, And that can also, like, just go hand-in-hand to, you know, in science you ask questions and that's how you find out answers. Um, Another really fun program I liked doing was uh, making your own, like, board game. So... We have a bunch of cardboard uh, cutouts and different recycled materials that we could use. And like at face value it might just look like they're making a board game out of random junk, but really they're engaging that part of their brain where they have to figure out what they need in order to make the game work, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're going to they're having to like cut out different pieces and if one piece doesn't fit on their like board game that they've made, they're going to have to figure out a way to make it fit. Or, like, if they want uh, to add an additional thing to their board game, let's say they want to add, like, five marbles to the thing and they want it to swish around. Then they start thinking, like, oh, I'm going to need to add little tubes or maybe I'm going to switch this piece, curve it somewhere so that the marble can go and, like, I-, I don't know, turn and turn the way that I want it to. So it really gets them to, like, ask those questions, gets them engaged. And I feel like a lot of STEM programming in general is just, is just like that. It's just getting... And it can be for kids or adults, like Mm -hmm. just getting them to think outside of the box, asking questions and just being really inquisitive.
1: (laughs) I don't think people realize too that game theory is a whole science unto itself. Yeah. I have a friend who's got his PhD in psychology and one of the the seminars that he took was game theory Mm -hmm. and how game theory relates to economics and, you know, building neural pathways and things like that. And it's not just building games, but also playing games. Yeah. Is something that actually changes can actually change the structure of your brain, and yeah. it's something that's very important. Neuropsychology uses it, economics uses it. Mm-hmm. So when people think, "Oh, they're just you know making a game or they're just playing a game," no, there's actually other things going on. There's, there's more going the, into it. You're, you're yeah. never
2: just really playing a game, mm-hmm. and the goal is for all to be inquiry-based learning, mm-hmm. uh, creative problem solving. I like to use the hook of popular culture to get people in. Yes. Like in my upcoming bugging out and talking about how arthropods are depicted in popular culture. Yeah. So, for example, people like Marvel movies. I think mm-hmm. the revenue of the box office shows that. And if you're a Marvel character that's based upon an animal, you're a 54% chance that you're an arthropod.
1: Wow. <laughs> I did not know that.
2: So when you look at yeah. like all the different types of ants out there... And then connect that with Mm Ant-Man, you can go down to this huge rabbit hole of ants that leads you to eusocial behavior, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. specialized morphologies in populations of insects. And then, you know, I was looking at that yesterday and learned that there are a couple mammal species that do that.
3: Wow.
2: So you have mammals that are breeding specific body morphs to perform different social activities. Mm
3: -hmm. That's awesome. That is awesome. I really like that remark, because pop culture really does... It gives people that connection to science or any other, like, base that they wouldn't have thought about. Yes. Like, Pokemon or Minecraft or even, like, Roblox. Um, yeah. All those that may just seem, like, at face value video games or, like, you know, oh, they're battling these, like, really cute monsters. But really, it, it gets them, like, like you said, inquiry-based where they ask more questions. And with Pokemon, you know, you can relate it to so many things. Like, with Pokemon, there's so many, I guess, pocket monsters that look yes. like real life animals and insects and and plants you've got pikachu who first of all is like supposed to be a mouse but (laughs) i don't know if he quite looks (laughs) like a mouse um but you've got like weeping bell who looks like a almost like a pear and then you've got Caterpie, who obviously looks like a caterpillar and so just kind of incorporating like pop culture into that and and getting them to ask questions and and relate it back to what they really like whether that be pokemon or or marvel or Minecraft, is, is the key. Well,
1: in an anime club, you know, we've done science mm-hmm. stuff in anime club. The pop and cooking kits, which are really super popular, uh-huh. that's molecular gastronomy. And it was funny because one summer before, I did a molecular gastronomy class, and if you don't know what that is, that's basically science-based cooking. You turn, like, strawberry jam into spheres that look like caviar. Uh-huh. And so I did that, and then about a year later, we were going to, let's do the pop and cooking kits for anime club and we're in the middle of one. And I'm like, and so we were talking about it. I was like, that's sphere Remember last year we did molecular gastronomy. Mm -hmm. You're taking something and you're using these different components to make, to turn something into a sphere, into an edible sphere. And so it was really one of those wonderful things. And actually when we were pre COVID, we were going to do Dr. Stone science. So it's one of the things it's, it's really a good hook to get people to relate to different things and when you're talking about pokemon i started thinking you know you have different genuses and different types you've got water pokemon and so you can bring
3: that back to animals and, you know. And their environment and, and like, the habitat that they live in and, mm-hmm. and why they need certain things in order to live in that environment. Exactly. So you
2: talk, uh, talk about metamorphosis with some mm-hmm. of them, changing their mm-hmm. stages. Yes. And then the Pokemon, some of that even relate to the entire lineage of the animal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So now you're moving into, you've got biology, you, you're moving into paleontology, mm-hmm. uh, some of the Pokemon that are based upon more human constructs, then you get, you know, anthropology. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. there's always an ology. Yes.
1: Yes. Rarely study. (laughs) Does it bring up the moral question of, should you be fighting these Pokemon
3: though?
1: (laughs) I now we've brought ethics
2: into this. Yes.
1: And you know, and we've actually had some very deep conversations in some of our programs because in anime, we've talked about with Death Note, you know, Um, that's a very moralistic Uh, manga and anime Mm -hmm. where if you had the chance to wipe out evil would that in turn make you evil and even k-pop club after uh, one of the very famous k-pop star committed suicide Mm -hmm. the next k-pop club was like about a week later and we had talks about that we had talks about getting help and things like that so you can bring up you know all kinds of things in these programs that people think are just you know fun and games if we just said hey hey kids you know Right. Come learn about Sharpie tie-dye. Sharpie tie-dye is about solvents and how solvents work. But you go, hey, kids, come to a program about solvents. <laughs> There's going to be no way. But, you know, one of the right. most important things you can learn as an adult is that alcohol removes alcohol. So when you get a Sharpie on your clothes, get a little bit of rubbing alcohol, take it off. Alcohol wow. removes alcohol, oil removes oil, water removes water. That's Life a hack. Life <laughs> hack. Most important thing you can learn because you can clean anything with those, those things. But yeah, no one's going to come to a program about solvents. But right. if you do a tie-dye program where you use Sharpies to tie-dye stuff and you use the alcohol to disperse the ink, and they're like, oh, it's magic. I'm like, it's solvents.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Even better.
3: Oh, yeah. The unsung hero of the chemistry world.
2: Solvents.
3: That's the best part when you get to, I wouldn't say like hook them in, because I, I don't know. I feel like they would come anyway if it's something broadcast like that, if it's mm-hmm. like a Minecraft or... Uh, you know, Marvel thing. Like, everyone likes that kind of stuff. Um, but then just going the extra mile and explaining why you're doing the program and, and what other, like, scientific topics it touches on is really great. Because it gets some, like, thinking and mm-hmm. asking those really important questions. Well,
2: it's nice to have that at the end. Mm-hmm. The You know, why is this? What are the important takeaways? Yeah. And even some of the, the words to describe the science. Mm-hmm. So that way then they just know it. I'm like, oh, right. I'm not just making a tie-dye. I'm, you know, doing some chemical experimentation with solvents. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. So one thing we run across in a lot of programs is failure. When your project goes south, you know, when Mm -hmm. something starts to go horribly wrong, because in science, you know, not everything turns out the way you want it to. A few years ago, we did spa science. And to do bath bombs, you have to have exact measurements, especially we're in a very humid climate. And so you don't do the exact thing, then things will go awfully wrong. And they did. And so it was one of the things we had to talk to people about. Yeah, you have to have your exact measurements. If you're not paying attention, if you're just throwing in a little bit here and a little bit there, it's it's not a pasta. (laughs) You're not just, like, cooking and randomly throwing stuff in. And so when things go wrong, I think it's really important for kids to learn that failure is something that happens, and you go back and you figure out what you did wrong and how you fix it because – Mm
3: -hmm. that's science. Yeah. It's, it's really testing like those variables. If you do one experiment, you know, like in STEM club, if we do one thing, my experiments don't always work out on the first try. Mm -hmm. I could do an experiment and I'm like, yes, this is, I've got like the recipe down. I, I have a good variable so I can use this to teach the kids. Um, when I actually go up there and I do it, there's been times when it completely fails. And I just make it kind of like a learning experience at that point. I'm yeah. like, okay, well, my experiment didn't work, but that doesn't mean that yours won't either. And so each kid will try out the experiment, and um, I just encourage them to either use the same variable that I used or go completely off of the script that I have. And most of the time, um, they come out with something that completely blows my mind. That's something that oh, yeah. I didn't think would happen. Or, you know, or they get even more... Um, engaged in the program, even more curious about it. And testing variables too, like, you know, maybe if you fail once, you can try again, and that can lead to something even greater than you thought would happen in the first place, so.
1: Christine always uses this this phrase when it comes to art programs, and it's it's the process, not the product. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it's learning how to do things, and it's learning how to stuff. When we were doing the robotics programs, a lot of times someone would do their entire build, and go to code it, and we're like, oh, no, it's not responding, and that's what you have to do is you have to go back. And we get so obsessed with, you have to finish this, you have to make this, and it has to be perfect. And I realize that part of this whole thing is learning how to do it. You know, We did not get a man to the moon on the first shot. You know, it took a whole lot of blood, sweat did, and tears yeah. to get everything done. And I think to build future scientists and build people that love science and understand science, mm-hmm. and understand that it's not just, you know, when things were changing during COVID, people freaked out because they're like, well, wait a minute, it was this and now it's that. And I'm like, well, it's because we're learning. Yeah. And because things are changing because we are trying to figure this out. And that's the thing is you're building a robot or you're doing, you know, a chemistry experiment or something. Things are going to wrong, go wrong, and you just back it up, and you figure out where to go from there. That's an important life skill. Something falls apart, you figure out how to fix it. Correct.
2: Yes, there have been many times in my life where things have not gone according to plan. <laughs> and it's always useful to have experience having to deal with failure before, because then you're not overwhelmed by it. And you can go, well, I know how to deal with this, and start the process. And start tracing it back to see where it went awry.
1: hmm So if you were going to pick one program, what is one of your favorite Broccoli and the Brownies program?
3: Okay. um, I think it would have to be the Diet Coke and Mentos that we did.
0: It seems like such a
3: simple, like, experiment, testing with it. That's probably my favorite because it got a lot of my kiddos thinking outside the box about it. Mm -hmm. They had so many questions that I was not prepared for. I try to prep as much as I can but of course you know like in mm-hmm. science not everything works out so there were times when like we would put Mentos in the Diet Coke and it wasn't as busy as it was um or was supposed to be or maybe we put Mentos in the Diet Coke and then the geyser that came up wasn't as big as the other ones that mm-hmm. the other kiddos had done and so they were just really ecstatic and um, so inquisitive and in asking me so many different questions and I left it I almost teared up (laughs) because just like the amount of wonder you see in a child's face when you after you're done with that experiment you know that they're gonna go home and either google it or they're gonna keep thinking about it or they they're just gonna apply it to other instances in their life where they go and think oh well this didn't happen this didn't happen to me or this program in this program you know my geyser didn't go as far but maybe I can change something in it to where it can, you know, to where it can succeed. And so that's has to be one of my favorite ones. It's the one that's stuck in my head the longest. Um, well, I think that sense
1: of wonder is really important because yeah. we lose so many kids. They lose interest in science starting around, you know, when they start to like fifth grade to middle yeah. school age, you start to see people drop off mm-hmm. and they divide themselves into camps of, well, I'm not a math person. I'm not a science person. And, you know, everybody can be a math and science person, and I'm not the biggest fan of math because I had some traumatic math experiences in school, but in undergraduate school, I took statistics, and I was like, ooh, this is math I like. This is interesting, and so I think, you know, making something fun, making something interesting keeps them on that track so that when they're adults, they have an interest, and they're like, oh, look at this new... You know, they look get, look at the new bookshelf and they pick up a book about physics and they pick up something. Science doesn't become a closed door to right. them anymore.
3: It's making it less intimidating because I feel yes. like a lot of kiddos come in and they see the word STEM or they see science or math or whatever and they're like, oh, I, like you said, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at math. I'm not good in science. And when I try to introduce coding, a lot of them are very hesitant because they've Seen through i guess just media or when people talk to them that coding can be intimidating mm-hmm. it's important to just reiterate that coding doesn't have to be intimidating at all it can be a really fun thing it's something that you just learn and practice like every other skill in life um, and just kind of showing them that stem is not something that could be intimidating it's something that's really fun and rewarding and it gets them asking those questions so just showing them that it's not intimidating at all and that they, that they can do, that they have the tools they need to succeed in those kinds of fields.
2: Yeah, it's making it familiar.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's not something strange right. and unusual. Uh, and that's when you have the programs that have the, the broccoli and the brownie. Mm-hmm. And it's when at the end you suddenly, you know, pull back the curtain and reveal the brownie. And I'm like, ooh, I was doing <laughs> science the entire time. So then they go and they look at that book and go, oh yeah, I had that program a couple of years ago about, you know, gastric astronomy. You know, mm-hmm. I can pick up this book on chemistry because I know, you know, a little bit about that. And it's sort of a familiar topic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've had kids, I've had my grown teens now that are, you know, adults and say, Oh, I remember when we did that. Because I remember the very first week we yeah. went Diet Coke. The first time we did Diet Coke and Mentos, which was a really long time ago. And I've had kids say, Oh, yeah, I remember that when we did this program or we did that program. And so my most recent one, which it actually came up today, We did grow a pizza garden, and one of the things we gave out for that is a mushroom kit, a mushroom grow kit, and most people don't think about mushrooms. They don't think about how they grow, and our boss, who's editing this, uh, her children were a little freaked out by the mushroom grow process because, yes, you water them overnight. They were what they call pinning, which is the little tiny sprouts of it. And then, like I said, in in about three days, they'll be fully grown. Three to, You know, sometimes ten if they're a little slow growers. But it is. It's this weird alien thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get to learn the science behind the science behind growing them. But it is. It's very, there's this wonderful, this sense of wonder when you see these things growing. Because it's just.
3: That ties into another program that I was, is like a favorite of mine. Um, When we did the microbiology, the micro.
0: Oh, yeah. Yes. That and was cool. I went in and
3: swabbed a lot of uh, stuff that we use every day. So we did the phones, the keyboard. Uh, we did Clifford when we had Big Red Dog Clifford. Um, I swabbed <laughs> that guy and grew the bacteria in our mechanical room because it's generally warm in there. And they were so excited and so surprised that there's bacteria out there that they didn't mm-hmm. know. They weren't scared at all about it. And just teaching them and showing them that, hey, there's bacteria all around us, but not every bacteria is bad. A lot of bacteria is beneficial for you, and it's good for you, and this is what it looks like when you grow it. And they had so many more questions that I could answer, and that's another program that sticks out in my mind is the mi- the microbiology one that I showed them. That was really great.
1: That was really cool. Yeah. That was so much cool. That was so fun to watch them grow. out how
3: much bacteria is on different things. is just very eye-opening, gets you yes. to think. And especially during this pandemic, you know, you kind of rethink about hygiene and you, you think about some of the habits that you may have had before and then the habits you have now that have changed. So it's a, it was a really good program.
2: Yes, I haven't done a whole lot of programming at the library yet. <laughs> the, as we're taping this, I only have two out right now and uh-huh. those are more fossil-based, which is always fun. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time playing around with the Vandergraf generator. So it's a small static electricity generator that people think, you know, you touch it, then your hair goes up. And it's been fun with the the kids because that doesn't always happen. And talking about failure. Right. And so why is this expected outcome not happening? Mm-hmm. And that's when you have the better conversations with the kids. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think it is? Could it be the humidity? You know, do you, what type of shampoo do you use? Are you standing on anything metallic? And so then the kids themselves are taking that and looking around and going, well, okay, I'm not getting this expected result. What then can I change of the known factors to get the result okay. I want? Mm-hmm. The kids also like, you know, touching it, shocking people.
1: Yes. And then seeing how <laughs> many
2: ch- people in a chain they can get.
3: Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> so next time you're looking at your scheduled library programs, and you think, ah, uh, that's just an entertainment program. My kids aren't going to learn anything. Think twice. Yes. Thanks for listening. I'm Darla. I'm Marissa.
2: And I'm Daniel.
1: Have a good day. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye. You've been listening to a Atascasita Library Advanced Coffee book clues for this episode let's revisit last episode and we did have somebody write in with two guesses two out of the three thank you bonnie for guessing our book clues and you were right so the first one was this one a thirsty crow after looking in vain for water to drink at last saw some in the bottom of a pitcher Seeing this water made him more thirsty than ever, and he began to plan how he could get it. He finally hit upon a scheme. By dropping pebbles into the pitcher and doing so until he brought the water near enough to the top so that he could reach it, he had all he wanted. Then he said to himself, Well, I know now that little by little does the trick. That was the crow and the pitcher one of Aesop's fables. Crow and Pitcher is numbered 390 in the Perry Index. Now the Perry Index is a widely used index of Aesop's fables, the fables credited to Aesop, the storyteller who lived in ancient Greece between 620 and 560 BCE. Ben Edwin Perry was a professor of classics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign from 1924 to 1960. These collections of fables credited to Aesop actually have a diverse origin. The fables originally belonged to the oral tradition, but they were not collected for some three centuries after Aesop's death. So here was our second book clue. When people don't express themselves, they die one piece at a time. You'd be shocked at how many adults are really dead inside walking through their days with no idea who they are, just waiting for a heart attack or cancer or a Mack truck to come along and finish the job. It's the saddest thing I know. That was Speak by Lori Hals Anderson. Speak was published in 1999 and is a young adult novel that tells the story of high school freshman Melinda Sordino. And our final book clue last episode. Very slowly he got up and groped about on all fours till he touched the wall of the tunnel. But neither up nor down it could he find anything. Nothing at all. No sign of goblins, no sign of dwarves. His head was swimming, and he was far from certain even of the direction they had been going in when he had his fall. He guessed as well as he could, and crawled along for a good way, till suddenly his hand met what felt like a tiny ring of cold metal lying on the floor of the tunnel. It was a turning point in his career, but he did not know it. He put the ring in his pocket almost without thinking. Certainly, it did not seem of any particular use at the moment. He did not go much further, but sat down on the cold floor, and gave himself up to complete miserableness for a long while. Some of you might have recognized The Hobbit, or There and Back Again. It's a novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, and it was published on September 21st, 1937. Good job, Bonnie. You did get both The Crow in the Pitcher and The Hobbit correct. Will you get this week's book clues right? Here's our first book clue. Through the darkness, clickety-clack, coming closer down the track. Hold your breath so you can hear huffing, chuffing, drawing near. For our young adult pick, it was beautiful, of course. I couldn't deny that. Everything was green. The trees, their trunks covered with moss, their branches hanging with a canopy of it, the ground covered with ferns. Even the air filtered down greenly through the leaves. It was too green. An alien planet. I'm going to cheat just a little bit for the adult book clue, but I think you all might recognize this one. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crust lovers, take their life, whose misadventures piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love, and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children's end, naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage, the which, if you with patient ears attend— what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. If you think you know one or all of these books, be sure to write in to ata at Don't forget, summer reading program Tales and Tales is still going on and it runs through August 7th. It is for all ages and we have prizes for everybody. Log your reading through hcpl.beanstack.com Be sure that you enroll in the Tales and Tales Summer Reading Program and log your reading either by titles or by minutes. Stop by the library when you're notified that you've completed a level to get your prize. Thank you for joining us here on Advanced Copy. Be sure to subscribe to the channel so you're notified when our next episode airs. The next program should be our Lit Chat program where PJ and Bonnie are going to discuss the group read, The Mistress of the Ritz by Melanie Benjamin. Have a great day. You've been listening to Atascosita Library Advanced Copy. Find information on media used and resources mentioned on our podcast webpage, This podcast is produced by the staff of Atascaceta Branch Library, a part of the Harris County Public Library System. Funds for the podcast are provided by a grant from Best Buy through the Friends of Atascaceta Library. Find out more about this 501c3 organization at foal.ws. That's F-O-A-L dot W-S.